conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I've talked about chapter 12 of Romans quite a bit, especially at Columbia. I particularly love this chapter. It seems to encapsulate the ethic of the Bible perfectly in a very small amount of text. I think it was Martin Luther who said the book of Romans is worthy to be memorized word for word by every Christian and to be read and studied every day. That's how highly Luther held the book of Romans. And most theologians believe that Romans is the most comprehensive, systematic approach to theology in the Bible. And I think that's pretty much true. Today I wanted to talk about this particular verse, the be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because the church today, I was actually, uh, someone introduced me to Bishop Fulton Sheen. And I, I uh, listened to a few of his lectures on communism, and then I, I listened to an interview with him and Bill Buckley, and they talked about like Vatican II and how the church was going into the world and interacting with the world and engaging with the world, and most of the conversation was about eco- economics and uh, the Vietnam War and, and almost everything but Jesus was in this conversation. And I couldn't help but think that going into the world... That's what we do. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. But we're called to not be conformed to the world, not be with form with the world. We're called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and we're, con- and we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which implies that it should never stop. There is no day in your life where you've reached a point of, of transformation and transfiguration wherein you should stop. And by the way, the word transform there is the same Greek word as the word for transfiguration. So it is related to when Christ is transfigured on the mountain. It is a transfiguration happening within us. It's Christ happening within us. And, and it's a glorious, glorious thing to behold, this idea that Christ lives within us. The Christ that was born, that was baptized, that was tempted in the wilderness, that went to the cross, lives within us. That glory, that strength, that power lives within us. It gives us the ability to be transformed, to be Conform to his image and not to the image of the world. What do we mean by the world? Well, in this situation, the Greek word is aeon, which is like our word for eon. It really means the times. The times. Don't be conformed to the times that you live in. Now, what are the times that we live in? Well, there's a few. The chief virtue of our time, I believe, is pride. 
Now, pride is not a virtue in the objective Christian sense. Pride is a sin. Pride is the queen of all sin, according to the Catholics. Pride is pride cometh before the fall. Pride is a misunderstanding of your place in the world, your relationship to God, who you are. Pride is not knowing who you are. Now, we say pride. We say, I'm proud of my country. We're not really saying pride in the sense of, I don't know the place of my country. When I say I'm proud of my country, I mean, I admire my country. I respect my country. But you don't really have, you should not have pride in your country. You should not have pride in yourself. Pride is a misplaced understanding of yourself in the world. So pride is the chief virtue of our time. We know this. We have a whole month to celebrate pride. We have a flag that's taken the promise of God, uh, God's promise to never again uh, flood the world and destroy all life. We've taken that symbol and we've turned it into a symbol of the chief of all sins. Uh, And so we know that pride is the chief virtue of our time. Which is fascinating because the chief, one of the chief virtues of Christendom, Christendom is humility, which is the opposite of pride, which is to know your nature. Humility is to know your nature, which is that you are by nature fallen and depraved. And so once you know that you are fallen and depraved, you have a good reason to tr- be transformed every day by the renewing of your mind. What other things are modern? What other things are part of our world, our time? Well, there's a few broad concepts that I think have seeped into the church. I think that have seeped into every possible dimension. Of, and actually, when I say the church, I mean the church building. I don't actually mean the church. The church is, uh, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So the church is perfect. When it's constituted and when it's doing its duty, when we are all gathered here in the midst and in the spirit and in one harmonious accord, it is perfect. It is untouched by the gates of hell. But as individuals, we are fallen and some of these concepts have really taken root in our thinking. The biggest one, I think, is, broadly speaking, relativism. I think that we have been deceived by... is a combination of two things. One is relativism, moral relativism. Uh, I have the right to decide what's right for me personally based on my personal preferences. That's not true. That is not based on any objective relationship that you have to God. You don't really have any power under yourself to decide what's right and wrong. That is a complete false doctrine taught by the world today. This is related to something called postmodernism. Postmodernism is, is a whole school of philosophy that basically states that all of the words that we use, all the ideas and concepts that we use, are generated by man and therefore subject to the individual's interpretation of them. Okay, so postmodernism and relativism are related. Now, all of modern philosophy is sort of rooted on these two ideas. The other uh, idea, virtue, that has seeped into, especially Christendom, is sentimentality. Sentimentality is, is being... Okay, sentimentality is a heresy. And a heresy is elevating one virtue above all the other virtues. And the, the heresy of sentimentality is that being nice... Being kind and compassionate and and tolerant is superior to all other virtues like truth and justice and honor. So sentimentality is a heresy. It is seeped deep within Christendom. I cannot go to another church and not see sentimentality as sort of the primary virtue that is on display. And it's it's not a virtue again. It's a heresy. So this is, I'm just trying to put this out for you so you can know when you're interacting with something that's of the world versus something that's of God. 
A great example of this is yesterday we went to the antique shop and there were lots and lots of idols. And I immediately, and there were lots and lots of words on the wall, but none of them were scriptural. And it got, I got to thinking, I was like, you know, antique shops usually have, if, there, if there's any amount of Christian, Christianity in the antique shop, you'll see some Bible verses, you'll see some old Bible, some, some allusion, some kind of allusion to Christendom. But this had allusion, allusion to all manner of pagan deity except for the one true God. And so these paganism, I think, is, is, is another sort of category um, of, of, of postmodernism, this idea that we all can uh, select for ourselves the values which are highest for us, and that's paganism. That's having a multitude of idols, a multitude of gods. So where are we going from there? I'm just trying to give you a framework so you can identify what's in the world, what's in our time, what's in our eon. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The objective is to be humble, to know your nature, to know that you are depraved. How do you transform your mind? How are you renewing your mind? By the way, the word here for mind is actually nous in Greek, which is a word for like spirit or soul. And so it's really a, a renewing of your inner world, your inner self. How do, you, how do you renew your mind? Well, the answers are the answers that we always return to. Prayer, scripture, instruction fellowship with the Lord's people. I, one, that, one that really occurs to me that relates back to sentimentality is, is, is Proverbs 28, 23, where he says, he that rebuketh a man afterwards and shall find more favor than he that flattereth with the tongue. This is instruction. It's better to tell someone they are in error, lovingly, gent, you know, with, out of love, than it is to flatter them and deceive them into thinking that they are correct. This is an opposition to sentimentality, which says everybody's correct and you should infer, affirm them in their choices. And it is in direct alignment with the idea that we should instruct one another more perfectly. Scripture is an obvious one. The, every idea that comes to you from the pulpit should come from Scripture. Every thing that we do should be in relation to Scripture. It is There's a reason that this book has been Unchanged for the last 500 years in the King James Version, in the last 1,500 years, uh, if you go to the Greek and, and the Latin. So this works. It's proven to work. We've talked before about how Christianity dis- puts the fruit on display. The good tree bears good fruit, and we can see it. So Scripture is, an, is kind of a no-brainer. Follow Scripture. Prayer. Prayer. Interacting with the Lord. The Lord will provide. I don't have a lot of time, so I do want to close up on this one particular verse from 2 Corinthians. This is so good because the, the word for transforming, transfiguration occurs here. And it's in the vein that we've been talking about. <clears throat> this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll start in verse 17 and go to verse 18. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Lord is that spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What is liberty? Liberty is not the freedom to do whatever you want. Liberty is the freedom to do what you ought to do. When the spirit is present, you have freedom to do what you ought to do. We misunderstand liberty today. Another another fallacy of modernity is that liberty and freedom are just being able to do whatever you want. That's not liberty. Liberty is being able to do what you ought to do. When the founders founded this country, they founded this country so that you can do what you ought to do, not so that you could do whatever you wanted to do. But we all, 
with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the spirit of the Lord. We all, the church body, with open face, with an open mind, beholding as in a glass, beholding from our perspectives, our subjective, we, we, we do live from our own experience. We do see the world through our own eyes, and we do look at scripture through our own eyes. So we are beholding the world through a glass darkly. This is saying that's fine, but you are beholding from your perspective the Lord, and the Lord is objective and unchanging. We all, with open face, open mind, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. When you behold the glory of the Lord, it changes you. And it changes you from, as a Christian, you're on a path. You are going to heaven. You are getting closer and closer every day. God bless it. You're getting closer every day. You're going from glory today to glory tomorrow to better glory the day after that to the highest possible glory at the very end. Until one day you're in such perfect harmony with the Lord Almighty in heaven, praising Him, serving Him. That's what it means to transform your mind, to be renewed every day. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for your precious word, Lord. Thank you for this precious instruction, Lord. Thank you for the example of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who we can look to as that glory, Lord. The glory that we seek to find, that we seek to be just like, Lord. We know that one day in heaven we will be there, Lord, according to your will, Lord. If you will it, it will be done. We ask that these words would contribute to that renewing of our minds, Lord, that we would have heard them, that they would... Strike us deeply, Lord, that that from glory to glory we would be moved onward. Lord, we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious Lord and Savior. Amen. Appreciate what Brother Danny's brought forth and would like to continue on with the message that we started last week out of Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. We'll look at the second half of the verse specifically. The first portion starts, where there is no vision, the people perish. And we looked at last week the importance of having a vision and the importance of having the right vision, a clear vision, and having a vision for the future, a vision for the church, a vision for our lives, and how important it is that we have the right vision. And he tells us where there is no vision, the people perish. I was given a book years ago. I think it was uh, Brother Kenny Venable that, that gave a book that he, had, um, that he had run across that mentioned 11 reasons that um, a church uh, dies or closes its, its doors. And one of the reasons was that the pastor or the folks in the church begin to live in the past. Uh, another reason is that there is no vision from the pastor or the church body. And that can be seen in uh, areas that we might have experienced. Where there is no vision, the people perish. In our own lives, we might experience that. As we mentioned last week, there's a whole lot of things that cause our vision to get dim, uh, cause us to get discouraged in our thinking, cause our vision to get off of the Lord and on other things or other areas in our life. 
Satan has a lot of distractions, a lot of fiery darts, a lot of discouragements along the way. And he causes our vision to get at least blurry and sometimes dim along the way. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But then the second portion of the verse is, uh, is very encouraging. He says, But he that keepeth the law. He says there's a blessing in keeping the law. He says, But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, I want to be a happy person. And I want you to be happy. And here we're given just a real simple instruction right here. That in order to be happy, we need to keep the law of God. Now, what is the law of God? We understand if we look at the Old Testament of all the rules and regulations that we've missed the mark tremendously. We realize that we don't have the power to completely keep the law of God. Where is the law of God? Where do we find the law of God? Well, first of all, this verse, this portion of scripture is what really helped me in my pursuit of the doctrines of grace, that that God writes some laws in our hearts and in our minds. In Hebrews chapter 8, he says, For this is the covenant, that verse 10, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. He says, I will put my laws in their mind. First of all, we see that it's God that's doing it. God is sovereign. God is all powerful. He says, for I will put my laws in their mind and I'll write them in their hearts. Now, not every law in the Old Testament is written in our mind. Or specifically written in our heart. But based on this scripture right here. There's at least something. That God is imprinting. In our mind. And in our heart. Now everybody here. Has what. Is referred to. As a conscience. And sometimes. When we do something wrong, it bothers our conscience, does it not? And there are some things that maybe we've not been taught by our parents or by our pastor that we know is either right or wrong, isn't there? I believe that that A portion of that is what God has written in our mind and in our heart. Now, what the scripture is saying right here is that when our life, when our decisions, Brother Danny made some really good points, 
when our decisions in life line up with what God's laws are that are written in our heart and our mind, then the end result is we're going to be happy. Now, when that is not the case, uh, Proverbs tells us, uh, chapter 13, I believe it is, verse 15, it says, the way of the transgressor is hard. Anybody ever relate to that? It can mean multiple things. It can mean the course of the transgressor is hard. It may look appealing on the surface, but it's a hard way. It can also mean that the experience of the individual is hard. I've talked to some folks that I knew that had made a decision at a prior time in their life to go away that was contrary to what they had been brought up. It was contrary to what the word of God said. It was contrary to what their conscience bore witness and they would respond. I've got a pretty hard way to go. So the way of the transgressor is hard. So not only in verse 10, he says right here, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel, God's people, after those days, saith the Lord, I will write my laws in their mind. I will write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Now, I understand that this verse is also used and I believe it can certainly be supported that it can also be used where God puts his spirit when he quickens and makes alive and causes the child of God to be born, that God plants it in the heart and in the mind of the individual. And God is effective 100% of the time when he does that. When he quickens us with his spirit and gives us spiritual life. And this is why I believe that the, the second point can be supported. Because he says, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. I grew up in an organization that, that I was taught that that was the main purpose of the organization was to teach other people to know the Lord. I realized right here that we don't have that power, that God does. And God is the one that teaches folks to know the Lord. And when he does it, he's completely effective. He says, for they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. Well, then how in the world are they going to know him? I'm glad that he tells us right here. He says, they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. He says, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. How are they going to know him? It's because he sovereignly writes it in their hearts and in their minds. Now, the laws of God. We see that God, through his people, write in our hearts and it bears witness with our mind. It bears witness with our experience. It may confirm or deny what we're, uh, the choices that we're making. Here's another way that we know the laws of God. Second Timothy chapter 3. 
Paul is talking to Timothy and he says, Timothy, and I'm backing up just a little bit here, but he says, Timothy, I want you to continue in what you've been taught. So God teaches in the heart and in the mind. Timothy, Paul said, Timothy, I want you to continue in what you've been taught by a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother. And he says right here, I want you to continue in the things that you've learned and those things that you've learned from a child from the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us what it is. The laws of God, he says, are given to us in God's word. He said, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. So we're taught that Brother Danny mentioned how this word has been preserved. And thank God it has been preserved. And I believe that part of the reason that it's been preserved by God is that the scripture, when it says inspiration, it means God breathed. God breathed this word. It's been pinned down and it's been preserved. Now, it contains the laws of God. He says all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And he says, here's the benefit of the scripture. And the uh, sister Annabelle said she was driving up the road the other day listening to Alexander Scorby. Anybody here listen to him? He's probably with the Lord right now. Brother James has. He has a very eloquent way of reading the scripture. I knew exactly what she was talking about when she uh, was sharing that. Well, why was she wanting to hear some scripture? Here's why. Because it's profitable. It's beneficial. It's helpful. And he says right here are the areas that it's helpful. God's word is helpful for reproof, for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So God's word, by the way, I hope you get to listen to Elder Bradley Day, really timely, great message about the times that we're in, as Brother Danny brought forth. He said, God's word is profitable, it's beneficial, it's helpful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He says that the man of God may be perfect, that means completely, may be completely, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So that's how to be happy in this life is to take God's word and apply it in your life with your situation. Everybody here has a completely different experience, but yet God's word is going to be just as effective for Brother Mike as it is to Sister Marcia and to Brother James. Because you can take God's word and apply it in your life. And when you apply God's word in your life and you, uh, you, you put it into practice, you apply it in your life, the end result is that you're going to be happy. 
So if you're not quite as happy as you think you ought to be or you want to be, you might ought to consider, am I taking God's word and it does my life mirror God's word? And if it doesn't, we shouldn't be surprised when we're not happy. God's not going to bless us with, with a content or happy spirit. Now, I, I want to just touch on this just, just a minute. There, I know there's a, there's a variety of views uh, about this portion of Scripture. I'll share with you at least one view or my view. Uh, maybe that will trigger you to research it and, and, and figure out where you land on it yourself. But in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, we've already read where the way of the transgressor is hard. So I want to just take a couple of minutes and look at the flip side of not considering or applying God's word in our life. In Romans chapter 1, we'll go down to verse 28. You can read all of chapter 1 and it really paints a really dark picture. If you read chapter 1, it really does kind of paint a picture of 2021. Pretty discouraging. It really is. But he says right here in verse 28, and I just want to hit this one verse right here. Brother Danny's talking about not being conformed to this world. You want to know what this world's like, you read Romans chapter 1. And I tell you what, it's, you think, my goodness, how could it be so applicable to the times that we're living in? But here's what he says. He says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. To do those things which are not convenient. In uh, Hosea chapter four is talking about Israel and one of the saddest verses that, that I know in the Bible, it says Ephraim, referring to Israel, hath joined himself to idols. Brother Danny mentioned that. He says Ephraim hath joined himself, hath joined himself to idols. And God says this, let him alone. Now, some folks read this in Romans chapter 1 and they say, well, I know that not any of those folks are children of God and that that is judgment of God upon those that are not elect or children of God. I believe that it's very likely some children of God that don't take heed to God's word and knowingly go the wrong way. And the reason I say that in Titus chapter 3 Starting with verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But he said, But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So it's very likely that some of God's people can make the wrong decisions and go the wrong way. And when he says that he gives them over to a reprobate mind, that just simply means a mind that's void of understanding. 
It just simply means a conscience that's been seared over. I grew up in West Texas and they, the old ranchers used to uh, uh, get a branding iron and they would uh, put their mark upon uh, the cattle uh, of their particular brand and, and you would know who it belonged to. And sometimes there's some searing that goes on when we might take and choose a course in our life that's contrary to God and there may be some marks that we bear throughout our life. There sure might be. But he says right here that God gave them over to a reprobate mind, a mind void of understanding. I'll use a real simple analogy right here. I'm borrowing this from Sonny Piles. Brother Sonny said one time, he was talking about going to church, and he said, uh, he used a lot of different examples. He said, uh, this was one that he used. He said, have you ever, uh, have you ever tried to get a great big dill pickle out of a gallon jar that they're just packed in there. That very first pickle that you begin to pull out, you sometimes have to cut it in two, you have to break it in order to get that great big dill pickle out of there that's packed in that jar of dill pickles. He said, but the next one begins to come out a little bit easier. And the next one begins to come out easier than that. And he said, pretty soon you just begin to pull those pickles out with much ease. He said, that's the same way it is about missing church. He said, the first time it bothers you a little bit. Second time it doesn't bother you quite as much. Third time it's much easier. He said that he gave them over to a reprobate mind. You may, you may know someone in your life that you feel like. Or you may have experienced this. I believe this is described in Hebrews chapter 6. You may have experienced it. You may know someone that experiences it. That you witnessed at least at some point in their life. That God had touched their heart and God had touched their mind and that God had written his laws in their heart and their mind. You may have known that they were brought up under godly teaching and then they made a decision to go away from the things of God and it may appear that their conscience is completely seared over. To where that it doesn't even bother them when they pursue ungodliness. Here's a verse that I want to share with you. Hebrews chapter 6. You you can start at the first of the chapter and go on down. He says, and this perplexed me until I heard Buddy Abernathy, an able minister, preach on this. And he opened it up and I, I, I love his explanation for it. For it is impossible. There may be some folks that you may be thinking about that look like it's an impossible situation. There may be somebody that you have talked to that you've counseled with, that you've tried to direct them in the things of God, and they've continued going away from God. 
And from your perspective, it may look like that it's completely impossible. And this verse starts out and it looks pretty dark. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. So from what I take from this, it's talking about children of God. Children of God are the only ones that are once enlightened. I believe he's talking about spiritually speaking. That they were witness and that they had a testimony that they were enlightened by the things of God. And he says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. And I believe that's talking about children of God. They're not going to have a desire to taste it if they're not God's children. But he says, and have tasted the heavenly gift. And, and, and then this one pretty well at least uh, satisfies my mind. He says, they, they were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. And they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. So only God's children and his family are partakers of the Holy Ghost. But he says something right here, and it looks very conditional. He says, and they've tasted of the word of God, of the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come. To me, that sounds like that's describing somebody that God dealt with at some point in time in their life. Maybe in their youth, or at some point in time in their life. But he says, remember it says it's impossible. He says, if What's impossible? He said, is it, it is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Wow. Now that one was a hard one for me. Because I grew up and when I first realized the doctrines of grace, I, one of the things that I rejoiced in a whole lot was to know once saved, always saved. That God, if, if, if you're included as an elect, as the child of God, you're going to end up in heaven. And I rejoiced in that. But he says right here, it's if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. So the picture that we're painting right here in Hosea, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Romans chapter one. God has given them over to a reprobate mind. It looks like that. There's no hope for that individual. Maybe they're heaven bound, but there's no hope of them realizing the joy that they have here based on what it's saying, except we'll look at we'll look at the exception right here. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, it basically appears that if somebody knows the things of God, they've been taught the things of God, and they go away from the things of God, it looks like right here, it may look like in your own experience, that it's just such a hard case that it's completely impossible. And it looks like it is. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Seeing that they crucified in themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. I believe the key to this verse is 
it may look like it's impossible. Your experience may bear witness that it's impossible. And you may think it's impossible. But there's not anything in the world that's impossible with God. It is impossible for us. But it's not impossible for God. God knows each one of us. A loving parent. A loving grandparent. A pastor. Church family. May not be able to reach that individual. But God can. And God can bring them back. Look at the prodigal son. Brother, brother uh, Andy White preached on the prodigal son. And your brother John was there at Columbia Church. And that's when he joined was right after that. It touched him so much. The life that the prodigal son was living as he was going away from the Lord. He sure wasn't bearing much fruit. But God knew how to reach him. And God knows how to reach each and every one of us. And it may be that God gives us over to a season for a reprobate mind. Because our conscience is so seared that it doesn't seem to bother us anymore. But God knows exactly what it takes to get our attention completely. And God can reach that individual and bring them back. So. We've been warned about going away from God. Now let's look at. Something that's going to be encouraging to you here. Where there is no vision. The people perish. But he. That keepeth the law. Happy is he. You can go over and I would encourage you to read. Psalm 119. There's 176 verses. Longest chapter in the longest uh, in the in the book of Psalms. And almost every verse or lesson that's taught to us in Psalm 119 is teaching us the statutes of God, the commandments of God, the laws of God. And it's teaching us to desire God's laws. It's teaching us to long after them. And it's teaching us to take those laws and apply them in our life. Now, the psalmist says that we're happy if we keep those laws. Shouldn't we want to know what those laws are? God's written some general laws in our heart and in our mind. But he breaks it down a lot more specifically. And as you read through these laws, I'm not going to read through all of them. It just it, it start, it, it, Verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to thy word. Brother Danny's talked about not living, not 
of being of this world, being in the world, but not of the world. This tells us right here how it is that we are not living of the world, even though we're in the world. And it'll also tell us as we read God's word, it'll tell us when we've been doing something wrong. Sometimes we don't know until somebody tells us, as Brother Danny said. Sometimes we don't really like it when somebody tells us. I never got real excited when my parents instructed me. I mean, I'm just being honest about it. Uh, I didn't like the support system that they had. It, it, it was very popular in our day and time, but uh, but effective. But God's teaching system is very much like, in fact, I think parents get their instruction from God and God is the example. And God himself, in Hebrews, James, it talks about that if we, if we know the things of God and we don't do the things of God, if we know the laws of God, if we know the statutes of God and we don't do the statutes of God, then if, if there's not a loving parent that corrects us, if there's a pastor that maybe has tried or hasn't tried, or we've denied it, or grandparent, if we've not taken heed or received counsel in that, then God comes into the picture. And He tells us that His method of helping us understand the importance of following His laws in our life He's already told us that we're going to be happy if we do it. But sometimes we think we're going to be happier if we don't do it. And then God says, I'll help you out in that by exercising a loving, chastening hand. Anybody here ever experienced the chastening of the Lord? It says now no chastening is joyous, but it's grievous. But it says yet the end result is that it yields or brings forth something, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness unto those that are exercised thereby. That just means to say that we do well early on when we experience the chastening hand of God to go ahead and learn something and say, all right, I realize I need to make some changes in my life and I'm going to go ahead and do it because if I don't, Usually the chastening gets a little stronger. And that's the same way parents oftentimes train their children. But that's the same way God does it as well. All of Psalm 119 will be a blessing if you'll, if you'll take Psalm 119 and read it. It's a great, great blessing for you. Proverbs 29 verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law. You know, notice something right here. He doesn't just say, he that knoweth the law. It's one thing to know it. It's one thing to have it in your mind. It's one thing to have been taught it. But he says to the individual that knows it and keeps it. 
He's happy. No matter what's going on around you, you can still be happy in the Lord. May God bless you.